0: Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gamble's Terrace, Antigua. Today in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy will show us why Paul desired to visit the church in Rome, and also a few more characteristics of Paul's life. All right, let's look at Romans chapter 1, and
1: I want to commence our reading from verse number 8. Romans chapter 1, verse number 8. And I want to read down to verse number 11. He said, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout uh, the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I have mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means, now at length, I might have a, pro- a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end that ye may be established. Let's pray, Father, please direct our thoughts this evening as we look at your word, may we be edified, may we be encouraged, may we just be informed so that we become more intelligent believers, Uh, give us insight into this great man of God and uh, we know that he is an example and may he be one of the, the heroes that we have, that we follow as Christians, we thank you for the marvelous epistle that he's written And we thank you for the insight he's given to us, both indirectly and directly of himself. And I pray, Lord, as we try to extract some of these insights this evening, that we would use him as a person with whom we can compare our own lives and to learn from him and to understand from him uh, more about the Christian life and how we ought to be engaged in the work of the ministry. We ask you that even though it might be a little tedious that we are dealing with the introductory material, I pray that we may not be tempted to rush through what Paul has written in the interest of finding those areas of doctrine that we can't wait to to be engaged in, but help us to understand that even in this introductory paragraph, the Apostle Paul uh, has some real insightful things for us to say, to say to us, and that would help us. Use your word tonight. We do not know what your ultimate purpose is. But we are sure that when we meet, two things are certain. We gather together. and Where two or three are gathered, you're in the midst. And the second thing, we are absolutely sure that when your word goes forth, it accomplishes its purpose and the intent for which you've designed it. So we pray that both of those truths would be real to us tonight. And that you would use your word to help us in our own Christian lives and in our better understanding of our role as believers. Thank you for what you're going to do. Thank you for this this group of people here tonight. And I pray that you will give them the patience and the long-sufferingness to be able to sit and listen. And that you would give me the wisdom and the capacity to speak your word in a manner that, Opens up the truth of what is here, but also that it is able to somehow maintain the interest of those uh, who are sitting. Uh, and it would be to the edification of the spirits. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. As we co- we commence this study, I want to remind you that we have looked at two things in connection with this epistle already. The are two things that we have really looked at. First of all, the Apostle Paul has already introduced himself. He's given us his credentials. And then the second thing that Paul does is that he introduced the theme of what he's talking about. He tells us his theme is the gospel. We looked at those two things, the the credentials of the Apostle Paul, the the theme of the book itself which has to do with the gospel. And now tonight we come to the third thing the Apostle Paul says to these believers in Rome. Uh, He tells them in the passage I read to you that he has a great desire to visit them. And he keeps repeating as you go on in the reading how anxious he is to have an encounter with them. He wants to have some kind of a a meeting with them. But you notice that the reason why the Apostle Paul is coming to Rome is not left to speculation. The Apostle Paul is not coming to visit Rome to see the historic sites of that metropolis. The Apostle Paul is not interested in the buildings. He's not about the cultural centers and the national heroes that Rome might have had. The Apostle Paul is not interested at all in all the place of cultural interest. The Apostle Paul is not seeing this as a sightseeing tour. This is not a, a, a tourist trying to see what Rome is like. The Apostle Paul's interest is in the believers that he finds there in that particular city of Rome. It's not as though when a man becomes a Christian, he doesn't have an interest in general culture. But the truth of the matter is that there's some things more important to the Christian than culture. And uh, in connection with the believer, his interest is much more in the fellowship and the relationship he has with other believers, and cultural issues begin to take a secondary role. And so you find that when Paul is coming to the believers and he's telling them, "I, I can't wait to come to Rome, the, the mistress of the world, the metropolis of the world. Uh, I'm not coming for sightseeing tour. I don't want to know about your cultural sites. I don't want to know about your, your, your cultural heritage." The Apostle Paul is saying, I'm coming to you because I want to do something for you. You have a need that I need to meet in your life. So in Paul's case, his interest is to establish these believers. He tells them that in verse number 11. Notice what he says. He said, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to the end that ye may be established. So why Paul thanks God for these believers... And when the Apostle Paul speaks of the fact that their faith is spoken throughout the world, the Apostle is also cognizant of the fact that even believers of this caliber, there is still something that is deficient and something that they need to be established. The word that he uses here is the word that means strengthening. It's the word that means building up. It's the word that means to complete uh, a person. So the idea that Paul is saying to them that even though he's praying for them, he's thankful to God for them and that they have a witness and a testimony on a global scale, the Apostle Paul says, says to them, look, you haven't arrived and there's still a need for you to be established. So Paul realizes that these believers need to be fed, they need to be mentored, they need to be discipled, they need to be trained. And and Paul... Uh, Wants to deal with this matter to try to help them in this in, in this matter. Let me just say something at the beginning here. You must always remember that conversion is not the end; it is just the beginning. See, we must always remember. We have not done a very good job as as, as pastors and churches of mentoring believers. I think this has been the greatest deficiency uh, in the church. I forgot who I was talking to very recently. Uh, but we were talking about the church, and I said to you, you know, if I had to redo my whole ministry again, and even in my home and my family, there's so many things I would change. i made so many massive mistakes in, in my own ministry, in my own home. Uh, if I had to redo it again, there's certain things that I would do. But, but one of the greatest things I would do, both in the church and my home, is disciple my children and disciple the, the believers in the church. See, uh, That has not been something that we have done adequately or effectively. We've pretty much left it to other people to do it, and the consequence we don't have giants today. We got dwarfs. We got pygmies. See, and and that's a sad commentary on the church. But Paul is aware that these people have come to faith. And uh, they, they were not complete in themselves. They were on the end of themselves. It was just the beginning. And something else needed to be done in their lives. And Paul is saying, I want to visit you. Because I want to strengthen you. I want to build you up. I want to make you more complete in Christ. There's an analogy that is used in the Bible of people who come to faith in Christ. And um, Paul uses it. Peter uses it. When a person comes to Christ, the Bible describes them as what? babes in Christ. And when you talk about a person who's a babe, the knowledge that is used there, it means that when you have a babe, it means that you have to train that babe to walk. It means that you have to train that, and you have to give that babe certain things to make his taste, his appetite, work on his appetite, and you also have to train him how to behave. In a a similar way, that's the same job that a church has to do we got to teach believers how to walk, how to behave themselves, how to conduct themselves. But we have to whet their appetite uh, and give them a, a desire for certain things. The world is wetting their appetite every single day. Every television set, no, every TV program, everything you see on the internet. The world is wetting their appetite for the wrong things. The church needs to create in God's people a desire for spiritual things. And then of course... We have to teach them not only how to walk, we have to teach them how to behave. You know, when I was a young believer, nobody had to teach me how to behave. I knew a Christian had to be different. Today, I'm totally amazed that people have become Christians and they don't understand they need to be different. They just need to fit in. They don't understand that Christianity is a completely different thing. And I think the church needs to get back uh, to that matter. But the Apostle Paul has a special object in coming to Rome. And it is he wants to establish these young believers uh, in the faith. I want to remind you that Paul was cognizant of three things in relation to the believer. First of all, when you become a Christian, whether you know it or not, you become the target of satanic attack. You've got to understand that the moment you get saved, things are going to happen in your life. The enemy will pursue you. and. He wants to hurl doubts at you the moment you believe you're a Christian. He wants to uh, impregnate your mind with doubt. He wants to cast doubt on the veracity of your Christianity. And he wants you to believe that you've gone through some psychological experience where there's something real. And he will bombard you as far as your, your faith is concerned. And his goal is always to discourage you, and it's always to defeat you and present obstacles in your life. Yes. Yes. Paul was aware of that. And so when Paul wants to come to these believers, he's aware that they've come to faith. And Paul is aware that because they've come to faith, they're under attack. The second thing that uh, Paul was cognizant of a believer is that not only the devil is under attack, but there is an enticement to sin after you become a Christian. That's why Paul wrote Romans 6, 7, and 8 to discuss the whole question of sin in relation to the believer's life. When we come to that passage, we'll come to it sometime later. But one of the most subtle tricks of the devil, and one of the most subtle arguments of the, of the devil is that since you are saved by grace, and this is one of the arguments, you know, if we're saved by grace, the more we sin, the more grace God, God would give. And, and Paul has to deal with that argument. It's a matter, it's, a, it's amazing how people can twist scripture to accommodate their lifestyle. And Paul has to dash that argument in chapters 6, 7, and 8. Dealing with the whole question of sin in the believer's life. So he's coming to Rome. Not only to let them be aware that they're under satanic attack. But also to let them be aware of the enticement to sin. And he talks about the relation of sin in, in, in the believer's life. And how the believer should deal with it. We'll come to that in chapters number 6, 7, and 8. And the, the theme of that passage is, sin shall not have dominion over you. That's the theme. Sin shall not dominate your life. How, how can you break the bondage of sin? Romans chapter 6 and 7. Spells out in, in the clearest language. Of how we deal with the problem of sin in the believer's life. And the bondage to sin in the believer's life. But that's why he's trying to... And then the other thing that Paul was keenly aware of. And that when these people came to faith. For the matter of the attack of these false teachers. Throughout Paul's ministry. Throughout Paul's writings. You'll find the apostle Paul is always aware that he has to counter the infiltration of false teachers in the church. When Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he has to combat Judaism and legalism. That's the whole theme of the book of of, of Galatians. When Paul writes the book of Colossians, he has to combat something called Gnosticism and Mysticism. But he has to deal with the errors and the false teaching entering the church. And when he comes to Rome... He's coming to Rome as well to help clarify the biblical doctrine of salvation and to give them the biblical doctrine of sanctification, how the believer can live victoriously, and then he gives them in the final chapter some practical ways of how they to live out their lives in the in the world in which they live. So Paul here is aware that he needs to establish them. One of the things that always baffled the Apostle Paul is the ease and the simplicity. With which believers that he led to the Lord were so easily deceived. You remember what he told the Galatians? These words, All foolish Galatians who have bewitched you. See, did I not present Christ crucified among you? And now you're leaving Christ and going back to the beggarly elements of the law. And, And you know that's strong language. You're foolish. Use those kind of words today. People think you're trying to demean them, but never Paul. Again and again in Paul, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. He wanted to be intelligent Christians. But he was aware that this was a problem to be confronted and it needed to be established. When he wrote the book of Ephesians, he dealt with the same matter, but he used it under different words. In the book of Ephesians, he talked about the believers being established, rooted and grounded. Same concept. And that is what Paul was deeply concerned about, establishing the believers. So you need to first of all establish them in their minds. Their minds need to be established. Now how do you establish the mind? The only way to establish the mind is to indoctrinate them in truth. And the whole epistle of Romans is a doctrinal epistle about salvation. So if you're going to ground believers mind, you have to ground them in the truth of scripture. And then of course their hearts have to be grounded. The way you ground believers' hearts is that you have to, you have to give them a proper understanding of what is really authentic biblical love. There's so much confusion about what real love is. And you need to let a believer know that this is what the Bible says is genuine love. If you're going to establish their hearts so the emotions don't get the best of them, you have to explain to them what authentic love. So you ground their minds in truth. You ground their hearts in, in understanding the biblical concept of love, and then you're going to ground their will as a believer. There must be a balance between the human and the divine in the believer's life, and we need to let the believer know that it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. See? Believers must be told that they're not weaklings, and believers need to understand that they're not just irresponsible people in a world. They need to understand that they have a will that needs to be exercised. And that will have to be strengthened. The only way to strengthen that will is to bring the truth of scripture to bear upon it. And the Apostle Paul wanted to establish them. Not only their minds. Not only their wills. But Paul wanted to establish their hearts as well. So that's the first reason that Paul gives. Why he wants to come to them. He said, I want to come and I want to establish you. But there's a secondary reason. That is mentioned here in Scripture. Go back to uh, the same chapter I read to you, verse uh, number twelve and following. That is that I may comfort, uh, be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. At all times I pr- I purpose to come unto you, but was led hitherto hindered from going, that I might have what some fruit among you. She's not only concerned about establishing the believers grounded in them and rooted them in truth in Christ in scripture the apostle paul also visits them and paul wants to find see some fruit in now what is he talking about when he says to them here that uh, when he's coming to them that he might find some fruit among them is he thinking of conversions Is he thinking that he, by coming to them, he will increase the number of people who have come into faith in Christ? He's looking at numbers. Is that what Paul is talking about when he talks about the the fruit? Is he talking about fruit in the sense of, of picking people and bringing people into the kingdom? He's going to have an evangelistic ministry around them? Is that what Paul is talking about? Or is the Apostle Paul thinking of fruit in terms of the fruit of the Spirit being evidence in the believer's life? I want to suggest to you that whether he's talking about evangelistic fruit or spiritual fruit, the one thing that indicates that a person has life in them is that there must be some kind of fruit in your life the evidence of life is always fruit bearing and if there's no fruit in a believer's life or a person who professes to be a believer and there's no fruit whether evangelistic fruit or the fruit of the spirit is because they do not have life in themselves so Paul is saying I don't even want to establish you establish is to ground you but, but ground you is not the end in itself I want to ground you so that you bring forth fruit in your life. He's deeply concerned about seeing fruit in the believer's life. And I suspect that Paul was concerned about both types of fruit. Those that would uh, have come to faith and now share the faith with other people. And then secondly, I think Paul must be referring to the, the fruit of the spirit in the believer's life. That kind of spiritual fruit in itself. Now the third thing I, I want to uh, point out to you tonight in this passage is to say to you that this passage also, also tells us certain things about the Apostle Paul, both directly and indirectly. And I, I want to look at this particular passage and show you as well that uh, he also points out certain things about himself in an indirect way. He lets us into what I call the inner workings of his heart, how we look at the ministry. He also tells a little bit of his devotional life in this particular passage. And uh, I just want to point out, uh, just about three things about Paul that we learn from this particular passage. In addition to what he tells us there about dealing with these these believers. Uh, look again at the first verse I read to you. In verse number 8. Uh, first he said, I thank my God to Jesus Christ for you all. That your faith is spoken out throughout the whole world. Now the problem with that statement is this. Paul says in that passage, first this is what I want. And I'm looking for second. I'm looking for third. I'm looking for fourth. I don't see it. I go through the whole passage. And you'll find that the Apostle Paul is saying to them. He has some things to say to them. And he's saying, first of all, this is what it is. And I'm looking for where's number two now. Second. Then the number. And I don't find it. And I want to point out to you. That gives us some very Serious insight into this man's character, this man's personality. It shows me that the Apostle Paul was never a slave to form. And what I mean by that, the Apostle Paul was man a very passionate heart. Here you find in this particular passage uh, that he says to them, uh, First, I thank my, my, my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith be, be spoken of throughout the whole world. And then if you go down, the Apostle Paul gets somewhat Distracted. He, he, he digresses and he deals with a, a different topic. And the point I'm making here is that Paul's heart was often bigger than his brain. See. He was not so much concerned about form, whether his outline was first, second, third, fourth. See. He was not a slave to decorum. See. The apostle Paul was more concerned not about the beauty of, his, of what he was saying, but the substance of what he was saying. And that gives you some insight uh, into this man's heart. Numerous times when you go through Paul's epistles. He starts a sentence up here. He, he, he mentions something and he digresses to begin to deal with this topic. You say, well, wait a minute. You left me hanging up here. Wait, wait. And sometimes he doesn't even go back to this one. They call it, he's being a bad stylist. But Paul would sacrifice style for truth. That's the point I'm making. He was more concerned because that's the heart and the passion of a man. Paul was not concerned that when a person received his letter, they said, wow, what an orderly, systematic letter this guy is written. See? What a logical mind he has. That's not Paul concerned. What Paul concerned was that when they received the letter, they said, what truth is here? See? That's what Paul was concerned about. He was a man of passion, a man with a heart. And even though he had an appalling style, he was willing to sacrifice uh, style and methodology in order to, to really get across the truth. I want to say something about that because we don't get to say much about that. I want to say something about that. I think sometimes we pay too much attention to the form of a sermon. I used to be like most preachers. They want three C's and four B's and, and F five F's. And I, I've, I've, I've tried to do that. But I'll tell you that sometimes you spend a whole hour trying to find another F. You're wasting your time. Wasting your time, you know. And I've had people come and say, boy, that was a good sermon. What do you mean? Well, the five things. So because you have five things in a good sermon? What about the truth or the content of what was said? And I think that's one of the big mistakes we make. We're so concerned about form. So concerned about alliteration. So concerned that we got three P's and four f's and, and six S's. That we, we don't really concentrate on the substance of what is there. That was not the Apostle Paul. He saw that lifeless forms would be sacrificed for living substance. And there's something called the neatness of death. It could be so neat we kill the scriptures. Uh, what we need to do is to extract the truth. And whether we got it in or be here or whatever it is, the important thing is to get that truth across. See? And don't be so concerned about being be correct. About these different uh, systems and, and so on in place. The Apostle Paul is not tied down to form. By the way, the scholars and the stylists have a word for this. They call it an anacufla. Oh, a tongue twister. But you know what an anacufla is? An anacufla is, here I am writing on a subject of, of maybe Prayer. And then in the process of mentioning prayer, I, I mention, uh, I mention, uh, Jonathan or, or something. And I forgot now that I am talking about prayer and I go off talking about Jonathan. See? I, I digress. Let's call it an acoustic. Fancy term. See? And, and Paul was guilty of that. Throughout his writings, the Apostle Paul couldn't care left, right, or center. His important thing is that by the time I send this to you, I want to grasp the truth of what God has to say. And I might leave you with a dangling sentence above here and write 30 different verses and then come back to it later. But the thing about it is that when I am writing this letter, this particular thing hit me so hard. My, my spirit was so passionate about this. I wasn't too concerned about the logic. What I was concerned about, the truth of what God was saying to me as I was writing the scripture. He's a man of passion. Tremendous man of passion. A man of heart. And would sacrifice form for truth. And you find that comes out here. In the apostle writing. First of all. And I'm looking for second of all. Third of all. I can't find it. See? Because Paul is not concerned about this orderly sequence. He's more concerned about what God is saying to him. To the church. And he writes in that particular manner. So let us as believers. Don't become slaves to form. and slave to decorum. As far as church pastors are concerned. And churches are concerned. And preachers are concerned. Let our main concern be the truth of what God has to say to the people and give it to them. Whether you've got two s's and two b's or whatever, and you make it this, 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 uh, this—you distort this, this sequence that people are looking for. Don't be too much concerned about that. So that's the first thing I want to say that it tells me here about the Apostle Paul. There's a second thing that uh, comes out about this man in this particular passage, Uh, and notice what he says in 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 verse number eight. First of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken out throughout the whole world. The next thing that stands out about this man is what I call Paul having a, what I call a vital prayer life. Uh, look at it again. This is certainly the second thing that catches your mind in this passage and what a wonderful glimpse this is into the very intimate life of the apostle Paul. This is something that if you were to look at all of Paul's epistles and his introduction, with very few exceptions, if there are exceptions. And he's writing to the churches. He's always saying, I'm praying for you. And I'm saying, but Paul, you find such prayer so often. You know, I mean, we all struggle with prayer, don't we? But when he write the Philippians, or he write the, the Romans, or he write the Colossians, he's always saying to you, look, I am pouring out my heart in prayer for you. Now, is he trying to parade himself? The Apostle Paul would be one of the first persons in the world that would never want to elevate himself and give people the wrong opinion about himself. The Apostle Paul was just sim- speak- speaking the simple, solemn truth about himself that he had a very close, intimate prayer life with God. And prayer was like breathing ear to the Apostle Paul. It was part of his everyday life. He was a great man of prayer. And in this passage, he gives us some insight. Into how we prayed and what prayer should really be. Notice uh, three things quickly about that. Uh, first of all, look at in verse number 8. First of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Do you notice anything amazing about that verse in verse number 8? Anything about that prayer statement that, that stands out and hits you with a, a bang? Do you notice that the Apostle Paul doesn't say, I, I thank God? Do you notice that there's a qualification there? See, The apostle Paul Paul said, I I thank my God. God to Paul was very personal. He was not some abstract being somewhere in the universe. That is why Paul had such a dynamic personal prayer life. God was real to Paul. It was not the God in heaven. It was my God. It's not the church God. It is my God. That's the kind of relationship Paul had with God. Very personal relationship. By the way, you come to the book of Philippians. And here the Philippians are worried about the Apostle Paul. And they're also struggling. It's a very poor church. But they sent the Apostle Paul a gift. And they're concerned about Paul. But Paul is concerned about their own state. You know what Paul said? He writes to them and said what? God will supply your needs. Is that what he wrote? Absolutely not. My God will supply your needs. See. It's the difference between saying God will do something, but I, I, I know God well enough to know one thing. You sent me a gift in your poverty. I don't know how you sent me a gift once. No other church communicated with me. And Paul is saying, I know one thing. I know my God will not be a debtor to you. My God will supply your needs. Something very personal, something very intimate. That is what characterized the Apostle Paul's life my God and uh, it's amazing here uh, that the Apostle Paul would would, would mention that uh, again Um, and by the way this is not just a New Testament teaching on New Testament doctrine if you were to go to Psalms chapter 19 and you look at the first section of that Psalm you'll find again and again David says about God, my God my God, my God but we know why just like the Apostle Paul, we know that David had a, a dimension, his own personal prayer life. As a matter of fact, the whole book of the Psalms is a prayer book. See? And, but David could say in, in Psalms chapter 18, My God, my God, my God. Very personal. Very, very personal. And, and, and Paul brings that out here in this particular passage. There's another time when the Apostle Paul was on the road to, um, on the ship in, uh, going to Rome. And you remember that during the shipwreck, people were panicking, and the apostle Paul had told them in the first case before they even left, listen, don't leave port. The guy said, yeah, you don't know anything about the sea, you're not a, a captain, you don't even, uh, you know, you don't know anything about um, the compass, you don't know about the weather, uh, you know, you don't know anything. You 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 do nothing about this, we're gonna make it, and they went, and then when it began to happen, and the storm came, and it about the top of the ship, I suppose most of us said, I told you so. Not the Apostle Paul. Didn't say a word. And then when everybody is panicking and jettisoning everything overboard to save the ship and strapping the ship, etc., etc., the Apostle Paul uh, quietly comes and he says, and he said these words, The God whose I am and whom I serve has sent his angel to tell me that not one single life would be lost, but everyone must remain on the ship. Unless you remain on the ship, Your life is not guaranteed. But you get what he said. My God, whose I am and whom I serve. Again, notice the personal pronouns. That gives you an idea of the kind of intimacy the Apostle Paul had in in connection with the God. So there must be, in in this matter of prayer, there must be this element of of something that is very, very, very personal. Uh, Not God, but my God. I'm not too sure how many people can say that without swallowing the bubble gum. See? Because we don't have that. That we, we know God is there. But can we really say with meaning, my God, because we know God so closely that we can say, I know my God will do this because I know. You remember what God told uh, about Abraham when he selected Abraham? God said, I know Abraham. Why? That he will teach his children to walk in my ways. That's the same concept. Personal knowledge of Abraham. And Paul is saying here, when he used that term, my God, he's saying to us, that's what prayer should be. see Personal, very, very, very personal. And you and I should not be content until we arrive at that level of of personal relationship with God in respect to our prayer. But uh, as we look at the second thing it teaches us about not only the man's heart, that he's more concerned about, less concerned about form than about truth. He'll sacrifice form for truth. But the, the other thing, and then this whole matter of prayer, the second element of, uh, that the, the passage tells about Paul, not only is it uh, about his prayer life, that it is very personal, but notice the second thing that Paul tells us about prayer in, in verse number 8. He said, for I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Now listen, he's not writing a disquisition on prayer. He's not giving you a thesis on prayer. The Apostle Paul, I suppose, is not even thinking that these people are going to be so systematically analytical about every word I say. But when you, a pastor's job is to take scripture and, and give the details that the ordinary person will not normally understand. Or will not even be inclined to pursue. So when Paul says to me, it says to God, my God. And then he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Paul lets us into another secret about prayer. Not only is it a matter that it is personal, but prayer is also mediatorial. And what I mean by that is this. You can't just thank God. The only way to thank God is through Christ. That's a vitally important point. In other words, the Apostle Paul... Is is wanting us to want once reminding us that uh, we pray to God in the name of Christ and through Christ. The apostle Paul never leaves Christ out in respect to his prayer. However, he's praying for the believers, it is always through Christ. Because Paul understands that no request gets into heaven except it comes to Christ, who is the mediator. We forget that. We forget that. Look, the fact remains that the only basis of access to God is through Christ. We have access, the Bible says, in the beloved. If we want to go into God's presence, we come into God's presence through the beloved. I want to remind you that you are not a high priest. You are a priest but not a high priest. There's only one high priest. And I remind you in the Old Testament analogy, the only person that could go directly in the was the high priest. The people brought the request. Then the high priest brought the request to God. Christ is the high priest in heaven dwelling in the presence of God. The believers come to Christ through Him. We have access to God. I think this is something that we sometimes slight and we forget. But we must always as believers understand that prayer is not only something that is personal. That prayer is also mediatorial in the fact that Christ is the only mediator between God and man. I want to say to you that your prayer and my prayer will never get to God as it comes through Christ. And we need to assert that. And make no apologies for it. By the way... That is why I have no patience with people who talk about the union of all faiths. Everybody getting together. I have no patience with that whatsoever. God's people have nothing in common with any people that pray to another God and come to God through any other means than through Jesus Christ. We have no connection whatsoever and we should never make them feel as though they are our brethren. The Christian position is that no prayer ever comes to God except through Christ Paul is telling us that here here is this great man he's coming to God but not even his greatness gives him access except he comes to Christ these simple truths are there hidden in the text but it's important for us to bring them out and remind the believers that to prayer effectively we must pray to Christ by the way listen There are a lot of good religious people, you know. There are a lot of good, decent, respectable, moral religious people. But you and I must understand that that does not make a man a Christian. And that we must not in any way embrace him and include him in the kingdom of God. He doesn't belong. The most exclusive religion in the whole world is Christianity. See, If you don't have Christ... You don't have salvation, you don't have God, you're not getting there. It's an exclusive faith, and we must never entertain any idea where somebody else could actually come into the faith the Christian faith apart from christ so it's it's mediatorial. we've got to remember that. I was at the meeting on Friday night. Uh, we were all there, and I, I don't want to say too much about it, but it was a it was a disappointing meeting. I built up this thing to believe that this is going to be such an exciting thing and we're going to have some some real good exchange. And I went to that meeting. And I was the most disappointed man whatsoever. The thing that first of all impressed me, and I got to be very careful, but I saw all these credentials. This guy had been to Princeton University, been to Columbia University, and I expected to hear something of substance. And I would be embarrassed if the principal princess sat there and listen to that guy. Totally embarrassed. But here's something he said that had stayed with me. He said the only reason he is not a Muslim is because Muhammad recognized Jesus. And I sat there saying to myself, "So that's the only reason you're not a Muslim? Well, you're not a Christian then. That's the first thought that that you can see. He said that uh, Muhammad respected Christ and called him a prophet. But I don't know if you know this or not, you can go into the Quran and realize that Muhammad said that Jesus Christ was never crucified. Somebody was crucified in Jesus' place and Jesus Christ was never resurrected. He only recognized Christ as a prophet like himself as a man, but never as the son of God. As a matter of fact, the Muslims don't believe that God has a son. So when a man makes such a stupid statement and he is a lecturer in a school of divinity, I'm saying, what did it teach these people in these schools? Can you imagine a a young fellow going to get seminary work? These are the guys. And by the way, he's supposed to be a New Testament Greek scholar. And that's what he's teaching. And I said to myself, I can't believe what I'm hearing tonight. Can't believe. Listen, the Christian faith is an exclusive faith because of the mediatorial work of Christ. And, And don't ever forget that.
0: Join us again next time on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us the third characteristic of Paul's prayer life and how we too are to become people of prayer. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gamble's Terrace, Antigua.